0: father we're grateful for uh just rekindling friendships and reconnecting um with family uh not just with the langhoffers but uh with so many that have come in and so many that even this morning that have uh, joined us from out of town and for our live stream and and wherever we are in the world and wherever people are watching this um uh thank you for family uh, we are we're grateful and we pray that our life is lived in gratitude to you. Be with Trent as he shares the word with us this morning through Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, WFR. I want my youngest Judah to read Matthew chapter six, verses nineteen through twenty one to you guys. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. test test okay let me let me start that over good morning whitesbury road good morning fellowship center sorry you guys probably couldn't hear me uh, in the Fellowship Center, you have to be smarter than the microphone, apparently, to operate it, which is where a problem for me would come in. Um, my name's Trent. Most of you know me. For those of you that don't, I'll share a little bit about the man I am today with each of you. So I'm a professor at Colorado Christian University in their graduate counseling program. And every single day, I get to train men and women that God has called into the counseling field how to do counseling, and I absolutely love what I get to do. I am an elder at Trace Church. It's a Christian church planted by a group of churches, one of those being the Hills Church of Christ in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I get to speak at Trace Church about eight to ten times each year. I am the chairman of the board of directors of Springs Rescue Mission. Uh, a gospel-centered rescue mission in Colorado Springs that houses about 400 chronically homeless men and women every single night in the United States. Springs Rescue Mission is one of the most successful gospel-centered rescue missions at, at, at developing chronically homeless men and women into permanently housed adults that are fully functioning contributors to their local communities. So we house permanently. Real cool. Really cool. Uh, really, really cool. So we permanently house about 30 uh, chronically homeless men and women every single month, which which in that specific domain is really remarkable. Um, but the man I am today is not the man I have always been. In six days on December 2nd of this year, I will celebrate 19 years of freedom from really hardcore <laughs> drug addiction. Yeah. So I'm not. I'm going to spare you the story of my addiction, but I do want to give you a snapshot of my rock bottom. So when I was at my rock bottom, I was homeless. In New Orleans, Louisiana, staying at a homeless shelter for teens and runaways called the Covenant House, which if you've been to New Orleans and you visited the French Quarter, the Covenant House is right next to uh, Armstrong Park on Rampart Street. And when I was homeless, I experienced everything you can imagine a homeless 17-year-old would experience on the streets of New Orleans. And I experienced a lot that you probably can't imagine. And one of the reasons I wanted to give you that contrast of the man I am today with the man that I used to be is to make the point that the way I got from where I was to where I am is by serving the right master, the master of who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I want to uh, share with you a little bit from Luke chapter 16 on the idea of the master that you serve. And so in Luke chapter 16, at the beginning of the chapter is the story of the shrewd manager. Another way of saying that might be the story of the wise accountant. And what happens in this particular story is a manager learns that his boss is probably going to fire him. And so the manager decides that the way he is going to get a leg up on life is to forgive some of the people that owed his boss some money. And Jesus uses that parable to teach the importance of loyalty, especially to people in the family of God. Jesus actually makes the point in that story that often people not in the family of God treat each other better than people who are in the family of God. Matthew, uh, In Luke chapter 16, the end of that uh, chapter is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And lots of you are probably familiar with that story. Uh, there's a rich man who sees a poor man named Lazarus every single day. And Jesus says that Lazarus, this poor man, would absolutely have loved to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. And one day they both pass away and the rich man goes to Hades. And Lazarus, the poor man, goes to heaven and is right next to Abraham. And the rich man can somehow see this poor man, Lazarus, and asks Abraham, could Lazarus just dip his finger in some water and come cool my lips and tongue? And Abraham's like, there's a great chasm between us. You can see him, but he can't see you and he can't go to you. And the rich man says, well, would you send Lazarus to my family? so that he could warn them about what lies in their future. And Abraham says, says if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets... They won't believe Lazarus even if he's resurrected from the dead. And Jesus uses that story as a warning to us to listen to the truth of God's Word and to heed the warnings of the truths of God's Word so that we can live in eternity, we can live for eternity in heaven with Jesus. Sandwiched in between those two stories is a set of verses I want to focus on today. This is Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 10. The Bible says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth... Who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'm going to take a little bit different approach with this text. I really felt God put on my heart what I'm about to say today. And so here's the point I believe Jesus is making. I think Jesus is saying that human beings are patterned creatures. And I'd like to suggest this morning, WFR Church, that the pattern you live out in life is determined by the master you are serving. As a mental health counselor, I had a a student at Colorado Christian University ask me a a semester ago, Trent, how many hours of counseling do you think you've done in your career? And I've been a counselor now for almost 15 years. And so I did some math, which is kind of a scary thought. And I've done over 30,000 hours of counseling in my career. And one of the things that I try to do as a mental health counselor is identify patterns of thought and patterns of behavior. A counselor can often predict what people will think or what they will do when the person's pattern they're working with has been identified. And this is the point Jesus is making. If you can be trusted with very little, in other words, if your pattern is trustworthiness, then likely in another domain of, of life, if you're trusted with very much, you'll be trustworthy. That's your pattern. Jesus says, uh, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, if your pattern is that you're an untrustworthy person, then you're not going to be trusted with true riches because the pattern you live out is untrustworthiness. As a counselor, there's a lot of research in my field about common patterns human beings live out in life. And I want to talk to you about a few of those. So the first pattern I want to talk about this morning, I call the overcomer pattern. And here's the sentence that I think explains this pattern, WFR Church. Human beings recreate events in an attempt... To overcome them. Human beings recreate events in an attempt to overcome them. This is called the overcomer pattern. Now, you've all experienced this in life, whether you know it or not. Let me give you two examples. If you're learning to ride a bike and you just so happen to fall off, what is the first thing you're supposed to do? Yeah, get right back on the bike. Recreate that event In an attempt to overcome it. And what happened in your life when you got back on the bike and you rode it? That feeling of pain and embarrassment that you experienced when you fell off the bike evaporates. So, uh, here's another example. Let's say you're riding a horse and you get bucked off. What's the first thing you're supposed to do? Get right back on the horse. And if you get back on the horse and you recreate that event and you ride well and you overcome it, what happens to the pain and embarrassment you felt when you got bucked off the horse? It evaporates. So the overcomer pattern does work in certain domains of life. But in other domains of life, it destroys people's lives. The guy who developed this theory, his name's Bessel van der Kolk. And in the late 1980s, he was working with a Vietnam veteran, and he published this specific case, and here's what he says. There are scattered clinical reports of people reenacting the trauma they have lived through on its anniversary. For example, we treated a Vietnam veteran who had lit a cigarette at night and caused the death of a friend by a Viet Cong sniper's bullet in 1968. From 1969 to 1986, on the exact anniversary of the death, to the hour and minute, he yearly committed armed robbery by putting his finger in his pocket and staging a mock holdup in order to provoke gunfire from the police. This compulsive reenactment ceased when the man came to understand the meaning behind his behavior. Have you ever wondered why people seem to get into the same type of painful situation over and over and over again? The overcomer compulsion explains that behavior. Another really common pattern of behavior that people live out, I call the connection pattern. Here's the sentence that goes along with this pattern. As critical to life as adequate food and adequate shelter and adequate hygiene is adequate human connection. About a hundred years ago in 1915, there was a pediatrician named Henry Chapin who was working in hospitals in the northeast part of the United States. These particular hospitals were dramatically overcrowded with infants of immigrant families who had become sick on their voyage to the United States. Chapin was agonized ...to learn that mortality rates for the infants under his care in the hospitals he was working at were dramatically lower than mortality rates for infants at other hospitals all across the U.S. And Chapin could not figure out why the babies under his care were dying so frequently at such high rates... These children were receiving adequate food, these children were receiving adequate shelter, and these children were receiving adequate hygiene, and they still were not surviving. Chapin didn't know what to do, so he decided he would double the strength of his nursing staff in hopes that someone may notice a small detail Chapin was overlooking. He doubles his nursing staff and almost overnight the children in the hospitals he served at started to live. And survival rates of infants under his care rose to normal levels. Chapin looked deeply at what changed when he hired twice as many nurses to work at his hospital. And what he noticed is that the nurturing care provided to infants by the staff he hired increased dramatically. And it was at that point in history Chapin realized... The sentence I just read to you, that as critical to life as adequate food, adequate shelter, and adequate hygiene is adequate human connection. Infants do not survive in an environment where they are inadequately connected to their primary caregiver. Chapin called this phenomenon failure to thrive. And it's a diagnosis we still use in the medical community today. We used to think that a human being's need to connect actually diminished over time and that when human beings became independent and autonomous, they didn't need connection as profoundly as infants. What we have known since about the 1980s is that that's not the case. Adult human beings who are underconnected experience the same types of mortality that infants who are underconnected experience. What this means is that adults will do just about anything to avoid feeling isolated. This is one of the reasons why COVID inflamed mental health struggles for so many people, because all of us became a little bit more disconnected as a result of the COVID pandemic. It also explains why people are willing to use drugs and be sexually active or stay in relationships that are really toxic because there is a twisted sense of security in the pain of a bad connection, than people endure when they're chronically disconnected. In a 2006 study, researchers studied this idea. A researcher named Cone at the University of Virginia asked 12 women who were in satisfied marriages to come to his laboratory. He hooked them up to a brain monitor and he shocked their feet the feet of these 12 women with a sting about as painful as a bee sting. He tracked the activity in the pain sensing regions of these women's brain when he shocked their feet to get a baseline reading. Next, his research team placed a random person in the room that the women were in when their feet got shocked simply because someone was present in the room the researchers noticed a 15% reduction in activity in the pain-sensing region of the brain just because someone was present in the room with these women. The last iteration of the study, researchers called the husbands of these women... To be in the room with them and hold their hands and speak endearingly to them while their feet were shocked. And I have to uh, mention right here that these were in marriages the women described as highly satisfied marriages. Can you imagine what would happen if the women found their husband in the room after a big argument in unsatisfied marriages? It had gone nuclear. Cone and his colleagues repeat the procedure, shock the women's feet, while their husbands are holding their hands, speaking endearingly to them. What do they notice in the pain-sensing region of the brain? Almost a 40% reduction in activity. WFR Church, it is almost as though God designed human beings in His image with the drive and need to connect At this point in my field, we know that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. We know that the opposite of conflict is not agreement, it's connection. And the opposite of a low mood isn't an elevated mood, it's connection. The next pattern I want to talk about this morning, I call the thought process pattern. Your brain, WFR Church, is constantly trying to make your world as understandable and predictable as possible. Counselors call this the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, kind of a fancy phrase. Here's what that means. That means that your brain will influence you to notice important, hurtful, or dangerous things at a higher frequency than it notices anything else. You've all experienced this too. Imagine you go to a car dealership and decide to purchase a new white truck. You finish your paperwork, you get your keys, and you drive off the lot. Startlingly, as you begin to drive home, you notice the exact same white truck everywhere you look. <laughs> to be sure, there are not actually more white trucks on the road in that moment. But to make your world as familiar and understandable as possible, your brain is noticing the white trucks that were already there at a higher frequency than ever before. This frequency bias or frequency illusion is the beta. Meinhof phenomenon. While this is an advantage, it can be a major disadvantage. Imagine you fall in love for the first time and you're 15 years old. You and your love interest begin dating. It's bliss. Then, unexpectedly, your beloved slips you a note that says he or she is breaking up with you your heart is broken, and for the first time, you feel the pain of profound rejection. In this moment, the experience of rejection is similar to the experience of purchasing the new truck. So suddenly, your brain starts to notice that you feel rejected at a much higher frequency. Not necessarily because you're being rejected more often, but because your brain has suddenly become aware of profound rejection and your brain is trying to protect you from that and make your world more understandable so you are noticing rejection at a higher frequency. Over time, the rejected person, due to no fault of their own, may be vulnerable to developing patterns of thought that make him or her feel very rejected, overlooked, unincluded, and even worthless without actually being rejected, overlooked, or unincluded as much as they perceive themselves to be. Over time, our patterns of thought can significantly influence our emotional state and our overall mental health. The last pattern I want to talk about this morning is the pain relief pattern. WFR Church, human beings are designed by God such that they instinctively and reflexively seek to relieve pain and seek to reflexively repeat what feels good. My family and I moved to Colorado Springs in March of 2020. When we got there, we realized that there was a large segment of the population in Colorado that was completely clinically crazy. One of the main reasons for this is that a large group of people in the state enjoy climbing 14,000 feet mountains. Why on earth do people climb mountains in Colorado? Because when the climber reaches the summit, the brain of the climber releases reward chemicals that reward the mountain climber for her efforts. Why do we keep showing up to work despite having a job that's very difficult? Because our brains release reward chemicals when we open our paycheck or notice that it hits our bank account that influence us to want to keep showing up. Pain is a powerful stimulus of human behavior as well. As a mental health counselor, I break pain into two categories, physical pain and emotional pain. Imagine you touch a hot stove. Now, many of you don't have to imagine that because you've done it. When you touch a hot stove, what happens? If you're normal, you withdraw your hand. And some of you are like me and you're really stubborn and you want to touch it again to see how hot it was. And then you touch it a couple of more times to tempt your fate. I know you're out there. Be honest. This is God's house. You withdraw your hand without having to think about the way the kinetic energy from the stove transfers molecules of energy through the phospholipid bilayer of your skin into the nerve endings of your hand. You don't have to think about any of that. If you do, you need to talk to me after service. We need to schedule an hour-long counseling appointment. No, you withdraw your hand automatically without conscious thought. It's a reflex. In the same way your brain instinctively and reflexively seeks relief from physical pain, your brain also instinctively and reflexively seeks relief from emotional pain. But the trouble is, relieving emotional pain is much less intuitive than relieving physical pain. When I ask audiences this size how to relieve emotional pain, I get these types of answers. Uh, T, you pray about it. Or you talk with someone you love and trust about it. Or you read God's word and seek encouragement from the truths therein. And those are great answers. And they're right. They really all work. But what if something hurts you emotionally at five years old? Or seven years old. Or ten years old. That early in life, praying about or talking with someone about or studying God's Word to relieve our emotional pain are just not skill sets any of us had developed yet. So how do we relieve emotional pain? The real answer is you don't know how to relieve emotional pain until you learn. Until your brain discovers something that relieves the pain. And when you are hurt emotionally in life, your brain becomes hypersensitized to anything that provides pain relief. And when the brain learns how to relieve emotional pain, it will compel a person to return to the pain-relieving thing time And time and time again, every time the person experiences emotional pain. This was all discovered by two surgeons about 40 years ago. These two surgeons, Dr. Felitti and Dr. Anda, noticed something peculiar about the patients they treated. They were running the San Diego Department of Preventive Medicine's Weight Loss Clinic. And they noticed that the best performers in their weight loss program were the most likely people to drop out of their program. And they were really interested in discovering why in the world the people who performed the best were most likely to drop out. They did 200 in-depth interviews with patients that dropped out of their program. And they discovered that all of the patients they interviewed had endured some type of childhood trauma. In the interviews, they learned that this population of patients began using food to somehow medicate the pain of early life adversity. Let me illustrate this by telling a story. Let's say I was raised in a family and both my parents worked. And when I get home from school every day, I'm by myself for an hour or two until one of my parents get home. And let's say in the fourth grade, I get bullied really badly and I finally make it home. Like all fourth graders, when I get home, I'm hungry when I walk in the door, so I look for a snack in the cupboard. There I find one of T-Man's favorite snacks, a honey bun. I unwrap it, and I eat it. My hunger subsides in that moment, which is the expected primary benefit. But in this moment, because of my emotional pain, I get an unexpected, more profound secondary benefit. As my body metabolizes the sugar from the honey bun, and as that sugar enters my bloodstream, and eventually enters my brain, my brain releases chemicals like dopamine and serotonin that ease just a little bit, the emotional pain I endured that day. So I don't just eat one honey bun. This day, I plow through the whole whole box. Not because I'm hungry, but because my brain has learned a way to relieve emotional pain. So I go to school the next day, and one of the same bullies makes a rude, hurtful comment. Right then, my brain responds, And suddenly I feel the unexpected pang of hunger and I have a taste of something in my mouth. What is it that I can taste, WFR Church? A honey bun. Yeah. Now you can replace honey bun with alcohol, drugs, sexual acting out, gambling, defiance, or some other type of behavior. And you have the recipe for what mental health professionals call today a behavioral disorder. Dr. Felitti and Dr. Anda developed a 10-question assessment to gauge the degree of a person's adversity early in childhood. And this is called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. And I want to read to you the 10 questions on the survey. Now, before I read this to you, I don't need you judging your parenting or your family based on the questions in the survey. What I would like you to do is better understand how things you might have lived through could influence pain relief seeking patterns of behavior in your own life. Some of this might be triggering and I've done my best to adjust the language to fit our setting today. But here are the ten questions of the ACES survey. Number one, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often swear at, insult, put you down, or humiliate you, often or very often act in a way that made you afraid you might be physically hurt? Question two, did a parent or other adult in the household often or very often push, grab, slap, or throw something at you? Often or very often hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured. Question three Did an adult or person at least five years older ever touch you in an inappropriate way? Have you touched them in an inappropriate way or attempt to assault you in an inappropriate way? Question four Did you often feel that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special? Your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other, or support each other. Question five Did you often feel that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes, and had no one to protect you, or often or very often feel that your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it? Question six Were your parents ever separated or divorced? Question seven, was your mother or stepmother often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, sometimes or often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, or hit with something hard, ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes, or threatened with a gun or knife? Question eight, did you live with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic who used street drugs? Question nine, was a household member depressed, mentally ill, or did a household member attempt suicide? And question ten, did a household member ever go to prison? These questions include some things we all think of when we think of trauma. But they also include some things we don't think of when we think of trauma. Most psychologists break trauma into two different categories. Shock trauma, which is what most of us think about when we think of trauma, and strain trauma, which is what most of us don't think about when we think of trauma. Experts over the last 20 years have discovered that strain trauma is by far a more detrimental variety of trauma to your nervous system. What's so sinister about strain trauma is that it is often invisible. I can't tell you the number of times I've had people in my office who will say to me, Trent, I had food on the table, I had a roof over my head, and I had clothes on my back. But when I ask people if they felt special or like someone from their family loved them, or or whether or not they felt protected in childhood. I've seen even some of the roughest, toughest people on the planet break right before my eyes. The results of the ACEs study, so these two researchers surveyed tens of thousands of people, and here's what they found. If you have four or more adverse childhood experiences, you are 460% more likely to experience clinical depression. If you have four or more ACEs, you're 1,220% more likely to have a suicide attempt. If you're a male with six or more ACEs, you are 4,600% more likely to use IV drugs. And six or more ACEs reduces life expectancy by 20 years. Why is it that early childhood pain makes a person at such higher risk for mental and physical health struggles. As plainly as I can say it, the compulsion to seek relief from that pain when a person is too young to think or talk their way into a healthy, pain-relieving situation. But there's good news for those of us who find ourselves living out patterns of action or thought that are destroying our lives. Your patterns are under the control of your master. This is my testimony. I'm the perfect example of the guy who lived out the patterns I've described for you today. But when I surrendered my life to, Lord, to the Lord Jesus Christ as the master of my life, the way I thought and the way I acted was radically Transformed. WFR Church, the master you are serving today is the master you have chosen to serve. And you can only choose one. And that's a tough line to read because after everything I've said, I acknowledge that a lot of the behavior we engage in and a lot of the ways we think are the result of experiences we've endured that are really outside the locus of our control. And while our experiences are not our fault... How we respond to those experiences is our response ability. So, who will you choose to serve? That's the point of Jesus' message in Luke chapter 16. And there is no room for neutrality in life this side of heaven. Jesus is very direct. Eventually, you will come to hate The master you are not serving. Have you ever asked yourself why the woke culture of the United States seems to hate the things of God so much? This is why. They are serving the wrong master and have come to despise the other master, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. WFR Church, my prayer is that if you are not surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and master... And if any of your thinking or behavior looks like the patterns of thought and behavior I've discussed today, let today be the day that you surrender. In closing, I'd like to talk to three different groups. First are my elders at Whitesbury Road Church. There's a wonderful story in Exodus 17, lots of you have heard many times, about Moses leading the Israelites into battle under Joshua's command to fight against the Amalekites. It turns out God commanded, God blesses Moses uniquely in this moment. The story goes that as long as Moses' hands are raised above his head, the Israelites win. And when they drop, the Israelites lose. Moses eventually gets tired and ends up depending on the help of a man named Aaron and a man named Hur to keep his hands raised for him. To my elders at Ferry Road Church, thank you for the time, energy, discernment, and prayer you put in to protecting the mission and vision of this incredible place. It is noticed and appreciated. Amen. <clears throat> Second, thank you for your willingness to hold up the hands of staff like me to carry the message of the gospel to the people God has called WFR Church to carry that message to. May God bless each of you with the capacity to hold the hands of the leaders, staff, and volunteers of WFR up and to continue standing alongside them as they all work to heal the hurt that stands between hurting people and our Lord Jesus Christ. To WFR staff and volunteers, a lot of you that I worked with for a long time, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for answering God's call to work on the front lines of ministry, in life, this side of heaven. You find yourself in the midst of an organization that has the potential to shape the relational and spiritual health of people literally all across the world. The ripple effect each of the lives of the people you help will have on their families and in the communities where they live and work is impossible to calculate. May you find creativity, even when you're tired. May you find joy, even in the midst of pain. And may you never forget that the God who is in you is far greater than any problem you will ever face in the world, community, or church around you. May your relationships with Christ as a staff and as a volunteer team be more deep and profound than they ever have been before. And may you ever remember that you will reap a harvest if you press on. And may the mantle of the roles in which you serve feel ever easy and always light in Jesus' name. To my forever family, the people of WFR Church, I could never overstate the difference you've made in my life or in the life of my family. You inspire and motivate broken, messed up people just like me. Thanks for showing up. Thank you for keeping the faith. And thanks for fighting the good fight. Thanks for always finding something to give and for never giving up. When I think of this church, I think of Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. Jesus is carrying his cross to Calvary and he stumbles. A man from Cyrene named Simon is asked to help Jesus carry his cross. And for a lot of years, I've meditated on this verse because I really didn't like it. Jesus is my hero and my best friend. And it's hard for me to see him in this weakened state. One day I realized that Jesus could have carried his cross. He restored sight to the blind. He helped people who couldn't hear from birth hear. He raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. I'm convinced Jesus could have healed himself and carried the cross up Calvary, but he didn't. Not to show us that he couldn't carry his cross, but to show us that there would be times in life that we couldn't carry ours. Simon was a cross-carrier for Jesus. And in a similar way, each of you have helped me carry my cross at different seasons in my life. So, from the bottom of my heart, WFR Church, thank you for being a cross-carrying community of Christians. It's people like you that invest in churches like this that literally saved my life. Thanks for making a difference. May your generosity and love for others have the healing, transformational impact your love and generosity have had on me that lasts generations. Let me pray. Lord God of heaven, thank you for what WFR Church. Thank you for an opportunity to share from your word. Thank you for the truths that your word has for each person in this auditorium. And God, I just ask that anybody who is living in a pattern that is destructive would surrender their life to the right master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and experience freedom today. Thanks for what this church and these people mean to me. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.